It all starts with a doubt. What if? What if I wasn't uncomfortable when that man stared at me on a crowded bus? What if that same man didn't faint every time he read an inclusive sentence? What if I felt safe going for a jog after dark? What if I could name from memory as many female poets as male poets? What if in 1969, the American astronaut Neil Armstrong did not say, that's one small step for men, one giant leap for mankind, but rather one giant leap for humankind? What if the patriarchy did not exist? What if, in short, we lived in a feminist society? There are protests all over the world to fight against sexist and sexual violence. In France, with the hashtag Nutut. In Namibia, with the hashtag Shut It All Down. In Zambia, thanks to the Sista Sista Foundation. A few months ago, Switzerland approved equal marriage. On the same day, San Marino voted to legalize abortion up to the 12th week of pregnancy. In Ireland, a deeply religious country, the government has been providing free contraception to women aged 17 to 25 since the beginning of this year, 2022. In Iraq, women will have record representation in the new parliament, following a law that reserves a quarter of the seats for women. In France, more than one in two persons declared themselves feminists. In the US, 79% say they support equality between women and men. We won. We won. We really won. We won. Really, though? Did we win? The numbers kind of say otherwise. And when I say kind of, it's kind of a verbal tick. Because the figures show the complete opposite. In 2022, when I woke up, there had been already two femicides in France. In the US, three out of ten women experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. In Poland a pregnant woman died because doctors decided to wait until her fetus heart stopped beating before treating her for sepsis. Since mid-September 2020, the Taliban in Afghanistan have denied secondary education to girls. Finally, if no action is taken, the global average wage for women won't be equal to that of men until 2186. So we haven't won. Not yet. But we haven't lost. We're living in a moment where everything could change, on one side or the other, towards an even more misogynistic regime or towards a feminist society. My name is Rebecca Amselem. I'm a French and Canadian feminist activist. Every week for more than six years, I have been writing a newsletter in French called Les Glorieuses, The Glorious Women, with the ambition of proposing a feminist reading of the arts, literature and current events. À partir de 16h47 aujourd'hui, 
Ces femmes travailleront gratuitement. Une donnée symbolique calculée par la lettre d'information féministe Les Glorieuses. En 2016, les femmes travailleraient gratuitement depuis ce matin, 9h22, jusqu'à la fin de l'année. I remember that a few months after the launch of my newsletter, I was walking through the streets of Paris with my mother. It was a beautiful day. At the time, no one was wearing a mask yet. As we waited to cross, a man came up to us. He recognized me and called out to me. When I turned to look at him, he called me a dirty feminist. A dirty feminist. My mother was shocked. She couldn't understand how someone I did not even know had the nerve to insult me like that. Well, to be fair, she's my mother, so she was just shocked that someone would insult me. Her little pumpkin. To be honest, I don't remember very much about this moment. But according to my mother, I said to her with a big smile, this is great. She looked at me like I was crazy and I said, but no, bum, listen, this is amazing. He knows the word feminist. It's true that six years ago, that was all I cared about that the world was aware of the existence of this struggle for equality. It didn't matter whether people called themselves feminist or hated feminism. What mattered to me was that they knew it existed. And then there was the Me Too movement. I tell them that we're stronger together and that this is a movement of survivors and advocates doing things big and small every Late day. Late 2017. Famous women's voices were raised. They were heard. That part is clear. They were believed. The movement that started years earlier by African-American activist Tarana Burke was now known around the world. People are putting their bodies on the line and raising their voices to say enough is enough. All of a sudden, the shame seemed to have changed its size. I thought we were about to win. But six years later, this is a terrifying and exciting time. I'm convinced that we're heading towards either an even more misogynistic society or a truly feminist society. I think that maybe collectively we haven't yet found the right way to switch the right side. I think that I myself, in writing and sending my feminist newsletter in a world that is not feminist, find myself doing a dangerous exercise an exercise that brings to light difficulties and contradictions, including in my own perception of feminism. Since the beginning of my feminist commitment, I have been looking for a method, or methods, to achieve an egalitarian society. That's not easy in a world that is and advocates for the exact opposite. Capitalism and misogyny. Now that we've said that, what do we do? We investigate. To find the method. To build a feminist society. To accept being wrong. 
to start again and above all to win. This is the purpose of this six-part documentary for which I interview the greatest famous intellectuals of our time. French philosopher Geneviève Fraisse. I truly hurt for all women. And Manon Garcia. Knowing why you're having sex, what you're looking for when you have sex. American ethnographer Kristen Gotzi. Love is conditioned by the political economy. The Argentine leader of the Ni Una Menos movement, Veronica Gago. forma de organización política que nos corra del lugar de víctimas permanentes. English author Reni Edelaj. A foundation of nuance. Pakistani-American lawyer Rafia Zakaria. Tell the story in a different way. Canadian researcher Carla Berkman and her co-author Nick Montgomery. Joy increases our capacity to uh, feel things. Joy is this very different thing. Might actually be quite painful. American intellectual Natalie Wynn. Oh, there's different ways to be a radical. French political scientist Rejane Senac. Contre qui? Contre quoi? Italian aerospace engineer activist Yuri Casalino. On est plus vivant quand on a des luttes. An American novelist Sarah Schulman. Good movement helps people be effective from where they are. And to each of them, I asked the question: How do we build a feminist society? Welcome to the method. Every time women take a few steps forward, it seems to provoke a counter-campaign or a backlash to put women back in their place. We've seen it historically. In the, in the late 19th century, following the first wave of feminism, the first suffrage movement, uh, there was a campaign in the government and in the media and the culture that was very similar to what happened in the United States in the 80s. There was an attack on abortion rights, abortion before then was actually legal and rather uncontroversial. But by the end of the 19th century, in the United States, in almost every state, abortion was banned. The person we just heard is the American author Susan Faludi. It is 1991. She has just published her book, Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women. In this essay, she explains that women have just experienced a certain amount of legal, economic, and political progress that they are now experiencing a backlash. Bonjour, France. Si, si. 1991, I was three years old. And at that time in my little life, I did have a rather embarrassing obsession with Sissi the Empress. That same year in France, Edith Cresson became the first female prime minister. 1991. Edith Cresson. No, it's not C'est pas Edith 1991 was also barely 15 years after contraception for women was made free in France and abortion was legalized. And what Susan Faludi says in her interview is that society, and especially the conservatives, made women feel that they didn't really deserve these rights. They were being given a hard time. They were made to pay for those achievements. In the 80s and the 90s, women experienced what the feminist author calls a backlash, a strategy put in place by the conservatives to make women pay for their access to all these freedoms. The strategy involved various things. Perhaps the most laughable were the studies published by the press that said that celibacy and emancipation caused infertility and mental health problems. 
The least laughable were conservative activists planting bombs in abortion clinics in the U.S. Basically, it's revenge. Like with my brother's scribble on my books when I wouldn't give up the remote to put Dragon Ball Z on. It's the same, but with the conservatives scribbling on women's rights. The conservatives seemed terrified. They were getting ready for retaliation. Susan Faludi sums it up well when she talks about the overreactivity of men to the most microscopic victories of women. And then there's the backlash. The Me Too movement is a witch hunt. You can call right? it backlash. You can call it revenge. You can call it retaliation. Whatever you call it, today, we are experiencing the very same phenomenon. Me Too is dismantling due process. Me Too has created a gender war. I have a feeling that the Me Too movement is making conservatives terribly tense and anxious. Just a few months ago, a French far-right newspaper ran a headline about the feminist terror and fantasized about women's dinner parties that I had supposedly organized in order to, and I quote, infiltrate the media. I laughed when they published that. Honestly, I laughed. Because I knew it implied a whole bunch of fantasies about feminists. It implied that I greeted my guest by burning Polanski dolls while we worked out our plan for world domination together. It also implied that we would have a contest over dessert to see who had the most leg hair. And of course, whoever won would go home with a little vial of period blood for, for what? I don't even know. It's like I can't even imagine ideas anymore about this. It's so absurd. But then in real life, I removed my name from the lobby of my building, above which the floor number of my flat was inscribed. And I stopped having dinner parties with feminists. Because we were in the middle of a pandemic, of course. But also for the first time, I got scared. I'm convinced that they're readying their weapons. The woman who talks about putting bleach on pistols is the philosopher Geneviève Fraisse, a figure of French feminism. I met her when I was just starting out in activism. She wrote many feminist works that are now benchmarks. The philosopher has dedicated her entire career to the relationship between the genders, to the friction between the genders, the friction that creates change. I'm convinced that they're readying their weapons because they've had enough of Me Too. It's been going on for four years. That's a long time. Feminism has even become fashionable. For someone like me, it's funny. For a long time, I let it all go, so as not to dampen the atmosphere at dinners or parties. This progress, this new way of listening that the media has shown in recent years, this way in which women have managed to make themselves heard, Geneviève Fraisse fears it will provoke political backlash. I worry that sexism is a chronic and not progressive disease. We can talk about chronic illnesses like Geneviève Fraisse. I like to talk about loops, which are repeated throughout history. We are artists, researchers, activists, leaders. We are feminists, and we have this desire to change the world. But we're not the first. Hollande de Gouge believed in the possibility when she fought for women to be able to take the stand during the French Revolution. The suffragettes believed in it in the 1920s with the right to vote. 
and the Marxist activist Alexandra Kollontai also believed in it in socialist Russia when she thought that the right to abortion was the ultimate step towards a feminist society. They all thought they would change the world, that these reforms would be the trigger that we needed to finally live in an equal society. Each generation looks through this wonderful window in which new possibilities are finally revealed, as Susan Faludi explains. After so many years of silence, um, we now have this window of opportunity where people are willing to talk about feminist issues, where the media is actually willing to run stories about women's health, about sexual harassment, about um, a whole slew of women's concerns. Um, we never got there. It's kind of a repetition, a loop. I'm not saying that we don't move forward at all, but what I'm saying is that this backlash keeps coming back and a real feminist society is never created. So are we doomed to do this again and again? Are we condemned to revolt, to try to make a revolution, to fail, to forget, and then to start all over again? We have to stop looping back. You said it yourself, you used the word loop which is a word used by sound technicians, and one I know well, having lived with a sound technician for a long time. So absolutely, it's a loop. It's the loop you have to break. If women and their rights are victims of this loop, I'm a perfect example myself. In October 2021, while I was preparing this documentary, I was at a library in Paris. On the second floor, I was wandering through the history section, Among the books dedicated to the feminine condition, yep, you heard it right, the feminine condition. Well, I came across text written at the very beginning of the 20th century by this woman, Marcel Tiner. The book is called Eve's Revolution. The author was doing the same job as me. Not exactly the same, obviously. She didn't send out a newsletter throughout email every week. But she wrote a weekly column in the first feminist newspaper in France, La Fronde. Marcel Tiner wrote about her life, her situation as a woman, her readings, her experiences. And that was in the 1900s. Isn't that crazy? It was like over a century ago. Marcel Tiner was already writing with the ambition to change the world. That's a very depressing side to this, to think that we'll still be here in a hundred years. And that's where the philosopher Geneviève Fraisse comes to the rescue. For her, Even if Marcel Tiner was already writing about feminism a hundred years ago, it doesn't mean that we haven't made progress since. Over the years, my only philosophical hypothesis for changing the world has been this, the question of historicity, which is not only history, by the way. And for a few decades now, I've been attempting to demonstrate that it's historicity that would be the real change. That is to say, the recognition of one, that the genders make history, two, that history is gendered, and three, that it is this representation, which is backed by history, that will allow us to avoid the loop that you described so well earlier. According to Geneviève Fraisse, one method for changing the world is to reinstate women in history. That is to say that women are present, that they make history, that they belong to history, that their history is gendered, and that's how it will be politically recognized as a fundamental issue. 
history could have been different. We could have not erased women. We could have been legally equal to men earlier. We could have had access to abortion earlier. The consequences are dramatic. We forget that history exists as much thanks to the women as to the men. And we forget that some people have tried to erase part of it. Bon, je l'ai raconté 100 fois, donc peut-être tu écourteras quand même tout ça. Mais, euh, In the summer of 72, I went with my then boyfriend to the United States. And that's where I discovered the newspaper Ms., which had just started. And there was a page in it called Lost Women. And that Lost Women page, probably from the August or July issue when I was there, was about Marguerite Durand and her library. And so the moment when they're shouting in the street, we women who are without a past, we women who are without a past. It's the beginning of the women's anthem, created and sung by the French women's liberation movement in the 60s and taken up by many French feminist groups. And so, just as they're shouting in the street, we women who are without a past, I open a page in a feminist magazine across the Atlantic that says, you know, there's a library. Geneviève Fraisse is referring to the Marguerite Durand Library in Paris, founded in 1932 by the feminist journalist of the same name, Marguerite Durand. A huge library on the history of women, feminism and gender. It offers thousands of works written by female authors whose talent and thought have not always been recognized. A library that Geneviève Fraisse did not even know existed until she randomly leafed through the American feminist magazine Mrs., when she was on a holiday in the U.S. So, in September 73, I go straight to the Marguerite Durand Library, and that's where I discover it. I open the documents and discover the voice of women. The voice of women. It was a feminist newspaper launched in 1848 by Eugénie Niboyer, a journalist, a writer, and an activist for women's rights in the 19th century. And at that moment, it was like the great era when we really started to read a lot of Michel Foucault. And uh, Michel Foucault means returning to texts that are not necessarily philosophical. And so I felt allowed to do that because of his own approach. I too felt allowed to consult any text in the history of feminist thought, which I did. So suddenly there was this idea that in texts that are not canonical, that are not official, there is thought. And so I brushed away that we who are without a past. So from the early 70s, the philosopher Geneviève Fraisse allowed herself to find feminist philosophical thought in texts that were not considered by society to be philosophy. And she understood that contrary to what she had been taught, women had developed a line of thinking. They had a past, a history, and they participated in writing it. They were simply left out because history is gendered and imposed by men. I think the most serious part of our anthem is the first sentence. We women who are without a past. 
we who have no history, because it's not true. And Partisans, which was the great Edition Maspero magazine, had the title Women's Liberation Year Zero. It was the special issue. So, Women's Liberation Year Zero? Really? And then there's only one method. It's quite simple. On the one hand, philosophy studies say that the question of women is non-existent. So, that the concept of gender differences does not exist. That traumatized me, for sure. So from there, how do we think about this issue, this inexistence, this absence? is something that we ourselves, the feminists, renew with the MLF anthem. And I hurt, I truly hurt for all women, for all the women who lived before and during and who could not recognize themselves in this absurd caricature. Why does it still exist? Because we have professed it ourselves. Here we touch on the heart of my, let's say, philosophical approach. You have to get away from the question of origin. It's nonsense. It's saying we're the ones who started it. No, it's not we who are without a past. It's we who have a past, we who have a past, a complex past, a past that is not ridiculous. For Geneviève Ress, historicity is the mandatory method for breaking out of the loop. It is a way of not forgetting and of not having to constantly start over. Since 1973, Geneviève Fraisse has been studying and analyzing society through the prism of her work method, her great principle, which is that the relationship between the sexes must always be made explicit. What she means by this is that the method of historicity certainly makes it possible to give women back their place in history, but it also explains why their history has been obscured. Because men exercised political, social, and economic domination over them. So, according to the philosopher Geneviève Fraisse, always making this historical domination of men over women explicit is an essential principle for breaking the loop, so that we don't have to start the feminist struggle from scratch with each generation. Let's take the example of waves. The history of Western feminism is often described as waves. The first wave begins in the late 19th century and ends in the mid-20th century with women gaining political rights, the right to vote and to stand for election. The second wave extends from the 60s to the 80s. It's when the rights to contraception and abortion are acquired. Note that these waves and rights only apply to Western women. And then, we speak of a third wave from the 1980s onwards to mark the moment when intersectionalities is taken into account in the Western history of white feminism. Intersectionality means taking into account the intersections of several discriminations, being a woman in black, being a woman and a lesbian, being a woman in trans. So from the end of the 19th century to today, these are the three waves taught as the pillars of feminist history. But for Geneviève Fraisse, the very concept of waves is an insult to the feminist movement. 
because the history of feminism cannot be compared to small advances that are instantly withdrawn. It evolves continuously. It is built brick by brick. I think it's important to accept that there has been history. But by accepting it in a caricatured way, as I've heard it done in recent years with the wave story and the stories of voting rights one minute, abortion the next, it's a waste of time. I stress the word time. Time is running out. Maybe I say that because I'm getting on in years, but time is running out. The very concept of the waves did not appear until 1968 in the columns of the New York Times. In the article, journalist Martha Weinman-Lear described the actions of activists from the NOW movement, the American National Organization for Women, who protested in the streets and were regularly arrested. When I see 50 years or 45 years later that women can say, Feminism started with the first wave under the Third Republic, with the fight for the right to vote. I heard this only a few weeks ago on the radio. And it hurts to hear. It hurts very, very much. Yes, it hurts. It makes people think that the history of feminism started at the end of the 19th century, when some women started to fight for the right to vote in some countries. In fact, it goes back much further, as early as the 12th century. Widowed and unmarried women gathered in an all-female community to study and work together freely in an almost economic autonomy. They call themselves the Begin. In the Middle Ages, in France, women were allowed to vote in certain elections, for example in communal councils. But in 1498, a decree classified them as passive citizens, along with children and foreigners. We can say that the story of the waves record the advancement of white women's rights in the West in the 20th century. But as the attorney Rafia Zakaria reminds us, the notion of waves completely erases the history of women of color in the West and in the East. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously think so. I think the problem is, at least now I'm talking in terms of my book only and the reactions that I've seen to it. I think that the problem has been that white women, you know, it's kind of like they've, they're kind of satisfied with the way things are, right? Uh, you know, they get to define the movement and lay out the priorities and agendas, and they want to sh they've wanted to show that they've tried to be as equal as possible and they didn't have any malicious intent. Um, But like I said, like you said, this is a very white, uh, West-centric view. Um, the vast majority of the world's women don't live in white and Western countries. And for this to be relevant to them, there has to be a huge transformation of just the way we tell, uh, for instance, even the story of feminism, uh, beginning with uh, white women uh, getting the vote, etc., Um, and the and the issue is is that it's not that those women are not fighting feminist battles every day. It's that they are, but their stories are not, just not present in the current feminist narrative. And I mean, and if your story isn't present after a while, you're just going to be like, well, I mean, you know, uh, this is something for white women, and 
Uh, not for me. For the Pakistani-American attorney and author Rafia Zakaria, saying that the history of feminism begins with white women is a problem. In fact, the whole history of feminism is structured around the achievements of white feminists, as if the others did not exist, as if the experiences of women of color were less relevant. Um, so that if I'm saying, you know, talking about history, I'm very quite literally telling you to abandon the wave theory of feminism, and tell the story in a different way. So for the attorney, we must abandon the wave story altogether. And for Geneviève Fraisse, on top of this, we can say that the concept of waves also had the drawback of obscuring most of history. Every high point in feminism has crystallized around a struggle. And so these struggles, they're emblems, but they mustn't hide as militant historiography or even just historiography itself often does, the absolute radical multiplicity of all these feminist moments. It's a major feminist moment to a single conquest. It means that each time feminism is devalued. We'd never do that with socialism. Just look at it compared to socialism or communism. We'd never do that, reduce it to a single demand. We'd never say that the workers' movement in 1900 only wanted fewer working hours, for instance. So, there are high points, yes. But we cannot say that there were any waves that focused on one single demand. Unconsciously, Martha Weinman Lear, who wrote about this concept of waves in the New York Times, was denying women's history and condemning feminists to remain in this vortex. I'm not sure we have to say this, but of course Martha Weinman Lear is not the reason why the patriarchal system still rules our society. But this concept suggests that the feminist struggle is always starting from scratch and that feminist achievements have not been built on each other, or almost. It devalues the work of all the generations that came before us. And it makes us waste time reinventing what has already been conceptualized by others before us. And then the very concept of a wave implies something else, something really serious, the pullback. A wave that moves forward always ends up retreating. It suggests that every time a feminist advancement is made, the pullback is inevitable, mechanical, as if the fight can never be won. So, let's put the mechanics of things aside for a minute. I'm still pleading my case for historicity, and in this case, it's simply that we're in a power struggle. I'm fighting for historicity, and you can hear my enthusiasm. So, we have to be interested in a woman's history, not only to restore the truth, but also to get out of the loop, not to make the same mistakes again, and to finally build our feminist society. If we don't start looking at historicity, we'll lose the battle. We'll keep saying that the feminists of the past did such and such a thing that wasn't good or not good enough or not this or not that. And we'll fail. And by failing, we fail the future. You come with questions about the future. And I resist your questions about the future for good reason. By failing, we fail the future. I absolutely adore that sentence. When I hear this, I understand one thing. We are not condemned to fail. 
we can arm ourselves again with this infernal loop with something sharp. But for me, the cutting edge is my stubborn determination. That's where I don't compromise. It's not easy. It's, it's not even widely heard. But in any case, I write with it and I publish with it. So, yeah, I understand that you'd prefer me to answer otherwise. And it's maybe disappointing for you that I'm answering your question with historicity. Let me be honest here. Did I expect Geneviève Fraisse to teach me how to make a homemade bomb like the suffragette? Perhaps. Had I already ordered hydrochloric acid and aluminium? Perhaps also. But this is obviously not what happened. You heard it for yourselves. For Geneviève Fraisse, the first step of the method to build a feminist society is not to plant bombs, but to take into account the history of women, to remember their actions, their thoughts, their achievements, to remember that if they have been forgotten, it is because men have dominated them and excluded them from history. This is what the philosopher calls historicity. Bring back the history of women and the reasons why they have been excluded from history in the first place. Finally, Geneviève Fraisse offers us something much more valuable than a homemade bomb tutorial. She offers us the first step of a method. She urges us to think differently, outside of the patriarchal box. She offers us a radical feminist method. There are several strains of feminism, including radical feminism. Radical. Radical feminism. This word comes up. Youth um, have always been radical. A lot. Aussi un peu de, de radicalisme, etc. All the time, in every conversation. Creo que ese desplazamiento es, eh, es muy radical. Radical. And what this radical democracy structure produces is a simultaneity of action. In order to move towards a feminist society, the researchers, the activists, and the intellectuals I interview all agree that we must not compromise, that we must be radical. And this is episode two of The Method. I'm Rebecca Amselem, and you've just listened to the first episode of The Method, a co-production by Louis Media and Gloria Media. This documentary series was directed by Alexandra Candilonguet. I co-wrote it with Lena Coutreau in collaboration with Fanny Rue. Soukaina Cabal was editing and producing. The original music was composed by Clémentine Charuel and Julie Rouet. Lola Piplo was the English voice of Geneviève Fraisse. Stephanie Williamson translated the text from French to English. If you're interested in this podcast, please talk about it around you. Thank you. Thank you.